Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris, and it's been about two weeks since I recorded an episode. So as you can imagine, a lot has happened in those two weeks. Uh, the House of Representatives has decided to create a precedent in which arbitrary preference uh, reigns over principle. And uh, I live in Virginia, so there's there's a battle right now in Virginia to enact some uh, legislation that will trample over the Second Amendment. Um, and then there's the church stuff. And, and I got to tell you, though, um, watching all of this, uh, trying to, it's obviously always overwhelming because there's so much of it. But the, the church is the most important facet of society. I mean, it's the most important institution. And, and for me, I mean, I, I do these videos for you all who, you know, I imagine you as mostly working class, busy with probably kids and grandkids. Uh, you love your church. You just want to worship Jesus. And you turn on CNN and you hear talking points that sound, unfortunately, similar to talking points you're now hearing maybe in your Sunday school class. And, and I've tried to expose, explain um, what's going on, encourage you uh, as much as I possibly can, compare what's being said in the social justice movement to what the truth of the gospel is, what just common reason, as Martin Luther said, um, uh, you know, says. And, and I just, um, I don't see it slowing down. I don't see it slowing down. And even if on the federal level and on the state and local level, politically, things go south, the church is still the most important thing to me. Because I think that's where that that's God's plan. It's God's plan A, and there is no B uh, for um, uh, com- carrying out the Great Commission. It's the only hope to be salt and light in this society. As long as the church is true and orthodox and um, following Christ in every way, and so um, there's no perfect world. There's no perfect church, but um, the Lord has said that He will preserve His church. We have that promise. And, uh, and I do these videos because I, I believe in the church. And, um, and I got to tell you, um, th- we're in trouble in some ways right now. Um, that being said, there's some really encouraging things happening behind the scenes. And, and I want to give you a quick update before I get into the main course of this video. I was down in um, Naples, Florida last week for much of the week. That's one of the reasons I didn't do a podcast and that was on your generous support, those who are uh, patron supporters of mine. Um, they're actually one of the, the patrons uh, paid for my plane ticket, which I am so grateful for. And um, I was able to go down there and without getting into the details, um, because we, we, we had a film crew and we are going to come out with a video within the next few months uh, that fully will show what's going on and has gone on down there. But without getting into to the details, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see men and women who some of them served for years at this church, uh, were baptized as a kid there, involved in ministries and and outreaches to be told that they're racist because they didn't go along with the social justice message. And, uh, you know, the church is playing nasty with them. Uh, You know, don't come on our property, serving cease and desist orders, these kinds of things. And we have uncovered that there are ties and it shouldn't be a surprise to, um, we'll just say, entities within the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, and, and <laughs> what we know will be coming out. I don't want to say any more than that right now, but um, I'm just really appreciative that y- y'all sent me down there. And I think we were able to encourage some of them. 
because um, you get to a point sometimes you think I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Every, you know, I'm being disciplined for my church. What's wrong with me? And then to have some, someone from the outside come in and say, no, you're not crazy. Uh, what's happening to you is crazy. And, and we were hopefully um, able to do that. So, um, so that was my Naples trip in a very, very small nutshell. I will be talking hopefully more about it soon. I actually have a whole slideshow with all kinds of information and uh, it's just, it's not the time right now for me to release that, but I will be doing that. Um, also, oh, th this is great. Uh, the Founders uh, movie came out and um, I watched it and, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've already used it in this way and this is how I think the Founders uh, movie can be really useful. Um, one of uh, my supporters on Patreon um, messaged me and, and they're looking for a church, having a hard time finding a church. And they, they have a pastor now, uh, potentially, but they're concerned about some things. I said, why don't you send them the founders uh, trailer, the by what stand, not trailer, the, the movie, by what standard, and just see what they think, get their reaction. I and mean, that'll really tell you kind of where they're at. And they said, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And so I'm really happy that this was made. Um, I noticed uh, some of the clips, if you watch my podcast, um, some of the montages from Enemies Within the Church uh, of uh, the professors at Southern who are into critical race theory, and then um, Walter Strickland at Southeastern who's into liberation theology, that th those made it to some of my exact clips. So I, I think I know where they got those, but I was, I was kind of happy when I saw that. I was like, oh, that's awesome. They, you know, they used some of, of that material. Um, felt like I was part of it, I guess, in a way. And, um, and I, I got to show you this, <laughs> this is the best, uh, it's sad, but this is the best clip in my opinion. Like I just got a kick out of this clip. So here, here it is. What do you think makes the SBC the best denomination in America? Our, our stances on, uh, uh, just, just, I'm going to put it just simply put that we stick to what the scripture has to tell us. And we don't, we don't, we don't budge from that. We're, I'm grateful that I'm I'm not seeing the SBC do what some conventions are doing in terms of uh, stepping away from their 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 values and stances on biblical uh, hot button topics. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of biblical hot button topics, that really leads right to my next question. And talking about, I'm sure you've seen the chatter on Twitter and just conversations that have been going around about women pastors and women preachers, and the woman being the president of the SBC. What are your thoughts on that? How do you feel about a woman being president of the SBC? I don't know that I have a comment on that, honestly. Okay. Yeah, what do you think scripture speaks on women preachers or pastors? Would you be willing to talk about that at all? I, I'd say the Bible does The Bible does speak upon it. Um, since I'm honestly representing Lifeway, yeah. um, um, I'd rather let Lifeway answer that Absolutely. question. Absolutely. I appreciate your time so much, Rob. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. So yeah, after he's like, yeah, we're conservative, like we're, we're like such a good denomination because we're so, you know, firm on our conviction. And then a simple question like, hey, what about women pastors? Like, oh, I, I can't answer that one. I work for Lifeway. Like, it's just, <laughs> oh, it exposes so much. Um, that's where we're at though. And uh, and so anyway, if you haven't seen that, um, I would recommend it. I think, I think it's a pretty good um, documentary. And uh, so, and I think more is happening. I just got to say this, um, more is happening behind the scenes that I can't really share a lot about, but I, I want to say something encouraging, not just to say it, this is real, like this is actually happening. Um, th there are at high levels, people who are concerned about the trajectory of the Southern Baptist convention. And, um, and, and well, I'm, I'm talking to some of them about what could be done potentially. And, um, and that's exciting. So 
without saying anything more, I'm just going to leave that there. Uh, Y'all uh, who have, again, um, contributed uh, with not just financially, but your prayers, that has meant so much. And it's, it's enabled me to do this. And I see God's hand moving and he will preserve his church, uh, whatever that looks like, come what may. So um, I, I do have some things I want to talk about today. Um, I, uh, I was going to talk about this. I'm, well, yeah, I'll mention it real quick, I guess, before I get to the main course. I'm looking at, I have a bulletin board over there, and I wrote some things down on it. Uh, I have, uh, I, w- I was going to mention that uh, there's pastors leaving. Oh, Harry Reader is leaving the PCA. Uh, I just saw that headline right before I started recording. That's a big church, I believe, in Georgia. I used to listen to him on the radio. Leaving the PCA, it's over the, the sexual stuff. It's over the LGBTQ stuff. Um, there was another pastor just recently. This, this was intriguing. This is an SBC, but it's the same reason. It's uh, Pastor James Pittman Jr. He's leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. Chicago pastor. Um, and uh, not that I care about this, but social justice people do, so I figured I'd mention it. Um, he's a black pastor. And, you know, so he breaks the stereotype for who's supposed to be concerned about social justice, so, so on and so forth. But he's leaving over J.D. Greer and uh, his recommendation of using preferred pronouns for LGBTQ people. So, um, so that's going on. And, uh, and, and he's also hosting, he's a pastor that's hosting his church, New Hope Community Church of Palantine, Illinois. That must be outside of Chicago. He's hosting a conference for the International... Uh, I think it's called the International Association of Christian Apologetics, and a former, uh, per, well, the the president of that organization who who used to teach, I should say, at Southeastern, Bill Roach is going to be speaking there. Um, Tom Askell is going to be speaking there. I mean, look, that's that's a conservative direction. I can tell you that. I know Bill, and so um, anyway, uh, some lines are, are continuing to form, and it saddens me. And I know it saddens people in the PCA and SBC to see conservatives leaving. Uh, because they want to take it back, but how do they do that? And and I think um, it, you know, on that vein, you know, last thing before we get to the main course, I promise you. Um, on that vein, um, I was planning on up till yesterday morning to do an episode on Albert Moeller, because I, I think you know we're at a breaking point right now, and we need to figure out if you're in the Southern Baptist Convention, you need to figure out: Are you going to vote for Al Moeller? Are you not going to vote for Al Moeller? Are you going to nominate someone else to run against Al Moeller? And we want to give him, I think, as much benefit of the doubt as charity would allow. He's a fellow brother in Christ, and I believe in that with my whole heart. We also though need to come up with a paradigm for understanding some of the confusing things he's done within the last year. And I think I've come closer to understanding what that might be because I've narrowed it down. I've eliminated some possibilities. Um, And I talked to Dr. E.S. Williams, uh, so he'll be joining us for that episode. but I also, I, I decided not to do that uh, right now because we're entering the holiday season. I think this is a, a topic I just really, it's, it's important. Some of you are already um, at your destinations for celebrating Christmas and New Year's. And um, I, I'm going to bring you something that is important, but I, but I want you to enjoy that. Let, let's, not, let's not think about that as much yet. It's important. So let's talk about that in January. Um, and, and I have a few more episodes, by the way, before we get to that during this holiday season. We're going to um, talk about uh, Walt Disney, believe it or not, a book that I just read uh, in the next episode. Um, I, I'm doing an interview with the author for The Trojan Mouse, and it, it was a good book, guys. Like, I don't just say that. Like, this was a good book. I think every family needs to read this book. 
so preview of coming attractions. Um, and I'd like to talk about some Christmas books and movies that I really like, maybe show you a few clips. So uh, we will see. But uh, now for the main course, right? Let's get to the nitty gritty. If, if we were going to put a, like a label on the various things I'm going to be talking about in this video, it would be uh, under the umbrella of how to interact with LGBTQ plus people on a personal level and a political level. And we're going to start with the personal level. Um, there's been a controversy that's been going on for eh, two weeks, I want to say. Um, I've been a little out of it because I was in Naples. And, um, you know, the, the Twitter wars, <laughs> I'm, I'm new to this. I've been on Twitter for about a year now. And it, it's because of the podcast. But the Twitter wars sometimes are silly, in my opinion. And sometimes, you know, they're, they're sort of important, but there's a lot of other more important things. And usually I, I think of my audience as folks who probably aren't on Twitter. You're just like I said, working class, trying to, you know, understand what's going on while you're trying to be involved in your church and uh, lead your family. And so um, I, I try not to bog you down with things that I don't think are important. And there's a controversy that's been, that's arisen over Rosaria Butterfield, who's a, an author, uh, former lesbian, uh, and she's considered to be one of the more conservative uh, sort of speakers on this topic and and, and there's sort of, there's a whole genre right now you have like uh greg cole's book i read about a year and a half ago and you, there's uh i think it was called single gay christian there's uh gay girl good god which i read um and yeah you know, there's a bunch of them I and mean, it's everything from matthew vines to rosaria butterfield like matthew a good example would be like the new book that karen swallow Pryor put out cultural engagement in which um you know matthew vines is the liberal she says he's orthodox, right? This is kind of where we are in Christianity right now, in evangelicalism in the United States. Supposedly he's orthodox, but he's full-on gay Christianity all the way. Um, and then you have uh, someone like Rosaria Butterfield, who's like has a family, has kids, rejected that lifestyle, and she writes on this. And so she's considered to be like the conservative. I was actually with a bunch of younger Christians the other day uh, riding uh, in the car, and we, this topic got brought up and one of them was recommending Butterfield to me. He's like, oh yeah, she's good. And I hadn't really read her. So I thought I have to check her out at some point, but, but that was before this controversy came up and, and this controversy came up. Um, uh, most of you are probably not aware of it. And, and I thought to myself, this might be one of those Twitter things where I'm just like, you know, I'm at, I'm at Naples. I'm seeing real victims. I'm, I'm talking with folks about some, some big things going on behind the scenes. And I thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to, get involved in this. It's a, it's a lot of time. I don't want to read all these books, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to say something. And I'm going to, I'm only giving you a little piece of the pie. This is not like the definitive position on Rosaria Butterfield, but, um, I did happen to read one of her books. It's called the gospel comes with a house key. It was written in 2018. And I was told by someone who's read a number of her books that, yeah, this is the one you need to read if you really want to understand her. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll read it. I'll, I'll see what's going on here because look, she, she's come highly recommended to me. And, um, and so I do have some concerns. I do. There's some good things um, in this uh, and I'm going to give you both of those, but, but I do have some concerns. And I think the, the takeaway from this um, is that we need to be discerning and even uh, those things that, sound good we should we should we should think more into it not to be jerks or conspiracy theorists or any of that but just like think through the words that you're hearing and match them up with scripture what, what what's biblical language is this biblical language um because even those who have some good things to say and, and look i i'm part of this like compare what i say to scripture um but e even people who have good things to say 
can be blinded by things. And I think um, that's sort of my takeaway with Butterfield. I do see some things that she says that they, they, make, me, uh, they make me cautious. Uh, they, they concern me, uh, to say the very least. And I want, I want you to know what those concerns are. Um, and also what, what, I, what some of the positives, I think, are. Um, so I'm going to just give you the, the purpose for the book here. She says, um, in, in Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says, My prayer is that you will grow to be more like Christ in practi- practicing or- daily, ordinary, radical hospitality. And that the Lord would bless you richly for it, adding to his kingdom, creating a new culture and a new reputation for what it means to be Christian to a watching world. She says, radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors. Um, I'm not sure. That seems like a typo. (laughs) A daily way that seeks to make strangers and neighbors family of God. So um, so here's the thing about this, right? I don't have a problem with any of that, like in and of itself. There's a tendency though right now in Christian publishing, and I've seen it quite a bit, to want to put secular Americans in the driver's seat for, and they should be dictating to the church, kind of like what the church should do and kind of defining the terms on how they want to be approached. And, and this is the term she's using radical, ordinary hospitality. And these these are words that are, I mean, I I immediately thought of (laughs) radical by David Platt and liturgy of the ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. I mean, these are the ordinary radical. These are, these are terms that are being used and there's a reason they're being used a lot right now and they're popular. And, and so this, this is sort of part of a canon of books, like right now in the 2010s that, um, it's like a genre. I think we're going to look back years from now. We're going to be like, oh yeah, those are the 2010s books. They were like radical Christianity. And, you know, even when you're brushing your teeth, like you're worshiping and, uh, and and it's in the ordinary though that that it's radical like like there's a push sort of in that direction it's a neo-kyperian abraham kuyper's theology i think coming out because uh, he's kind of like a hot topic and so um so, so she's in this vein and what she wants to do though is is do something like she wants to start a new trend within Christianity. And, and the question I had, and maybe this is just me um, looking at things from my narrow perspective, but I don't think it's that narrow. I mean, I've been to a number of, lived in a number of states and my dad's a pastor. I've you know, met so many, I, I know a lot of Christians, we'll put it that way. Like hospitality has been done for a long time, 2000 years. I mean, I grew up in a home that was very hospitable. Um, I'm used to it. Um, in fact, um, while I was reading this book, I was even convicted a little. I was like, oh, I, sh- I should probably should be more hospitable, but, but it's something that I was used to. I've lived in it. And, and so she makes it out. Like, this is like this radical new thing, almost like, like, uh, the the watching world is we're going to get a reputation with him, a good reputation because we're going to start to be hospitable again. And I'm just kind of like, number one, the world's not going to be appeased. Like those who love their sin, at least like if you, like they're they're not gonna like love you because oh oh they're hospitable like I mean that helps not not being a jerk helps too but um like there actually is a conflict and I think Butterfield knows this but she does know this you know but there's a conflict between the world and the church like at a very primary level and so um so all that to say it, to try to create a new movement like this is this is a, it's a book of correction 
and, and to say that the church has been doing it wrong, the church has uh, not been doing it, and we're going to show you how to do it right, it seems a little presumptuous to me. And, and I was a little confirmed in that when I read this statement. She goes, if Mary Magdalene had written a book about hospitality for this post-Christian world, it would read like this one. Like, like, I would never write a book and be like, well, if, you know, Titus was around, this is what he'd write. Like, how do you know that? So anyway, it's um, it, maybe a little too big for its britches. We'll put it that way. Like, this is so revolutionary. It's like, well, it's not having people over for dinner, being there for them. Like, that, that shouldn't be that revolutionary. That should be something that the church has been doing. But she sees, she's, um, sees a problem in the church. She thinks the church is like, you know, drop the ball when it comes to this. So she's going to show us um, a better way. And so she um, talks about diversity, inclusion, and acceptance as elements of this radical, ordinary hospitality. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment uh, real quick, because th these are buzzwords that we hear in our culture a lot, but what does politically correctness rest on, like as far as principles? It rests on those things. It rests on diversity, inclusion, and acceptance, right? Like, why is it wrong to say like something that's considered hate speech? Well, it's, hey, it's not being diverse. It's not being inclusive. You're not accepting. And so um, what we're ha what's happening right now in the Western world and in the United States in particular is we're moving from Ten Commandments, Christian principles to these like diversity and inclusion and acceptance being like the new groundwork for creating a new moral order. And this is a result of modernity uh, in a way. Uh, David Wells, I just read a book by him called No Place for Truth. He talks about this. Uh, I'd recommend that book. Um, but um, th those words, th the sticky thing is those words aren't bad in, a, in and of themselves. Like they could be actually good terms if defined in a biblical way and according to bi biblical parameters. The problem is in our general culture, they aren't defined that way. And most people reading them are going to bring their understandings of those terms um, to them when they read those terms. And I don't think that Butterfield does a great job explaining them. Uh, that well, but they become more primary. Like th these are the things that should mark a Christian. And I don't see that in scripture. I see graciousness in scripture. I see love in scripture, but we, we're too often equating love with diversity and acceptance and inclusion. And there are limitations to those things. Those aren't, um, you cannot build a moral framework based on those things. They, they're, they're really more like empty uh, concepts until you charge them full of uh, the worldview that you're a part of. And so this is, it, it's dicey to, to start trying to base your whole approach to evangelism, which this is, uh, based on those um, kind of hard to define or most often secularly defined terms. And, and she does this though. Uh, those are the terms that, that she uses a lot. And there's other terms you know, in here, but you know, those, those hit me. Those stuck, stuck out to me when I was uh, reading this book. Um, now, it is an evangelism strategy. You know, we're supposed to build bridges. Um, it can't be rushed, which, by the way, like, I don't think it's right to rush an evangelism encounter, but Jesus often uh, had very short encounters, like the woman at the well, the rich young ruler. Like, it's not like he's getting together with them, you know, every week for a year and slowly introducing Christianity to them. Like, he's right up front uh, with them about what Christianity is and their need to repent. And I think that's important for us to remember that. Um, because I think um, Rosaria Butterfield has kind of this more progressive way of sort of this lifestyle evangelism where you bring them over and you want to make sure they're comfortable. Like that's really primarily important. Um, don't discuss politics, she says. Uh, you know, it doesn't get dug in over politics or culture. 
where someone stands on current events. And, and like, listen, those things can actually be your biggest gateway into evangelizing. You know, talk about, let's say abortion, let's pick an obvious one. You can talk about how people are made in God's image. They're different than animals and plants. And it's part of your worship for God. And those who do it have broken God's law, but there's a savior who can uh, take away their guilt and, and shame and bring them back into a right relationship with God. Boom, gospel encounter right there over a controversial political issue. Like, like that's, I think, the way that we should be looking at. Um, we should be looking at everything for how do we swing from the natural to the spiritual, like Jesus did at the, the, the well. Uh, hey, um, can I have a drink? Next thing you know, he's talking about living water. So I think that Rosaria Butterfield is, she's less comfortable bringing up things that would be considered controversial. And, and there, there's discernment that's needed here for sure. You don't want to be a jerk, but at the same time, you don't want to just avoid those things because it will make someone uncomfortable. Like people don't get into the kingdom of God without some discomfort of some kind. All right. <laughs> there's, there's going to be some dying to self. Like death is never comfortable. So I have kind of an issue with this, um, and it's going to play into what we're going to see later uh, regarding the LGBTQ stuff. Um, but she says, radically ordinary hospitality serves ravioli with redemption life. Uh, it's fearless. It is faithful. And as Russell Moore writes, describing another context for spiritual engagements with culture, it doesn't blink before power, but doesn't seek to imitate it either. I want to respond to Russell Moore and, and Butterfield because they're, they're writing on two different fronts. Russell Moore saying in his book Onward that, the church shouldn't be seeking power. And I agree, the church shouldn't be seeking power if, big stipulation here, if it's power in and of itself. But go with me on this for a minute. Should not the church be seeking power for the sake of love? What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, is not God love? Yes, he is, right? So is, are not the moral principles of God enshrined in his law, do they not flow from who God is? Yes, they do. It is loving. The whole law can be summed up with love, right? That Jesus said that. Loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself. He, this isn't like a new law in the sense that like, oh, this is has never been thought of before. Jesus is implementing something completely new. No, it's, it's, it's a summation of the first two tables of the law. It's been there since the beginning. The concept of this is how you love people. Here's how God has shown you to do it. And, and it, we can see it in the Old Primarily, God gives us examples of that. Now, if you're you know comfortable going with me on all that, which you should if you're an Orthodox Christian. If you don't, there might be a problem. Um, God being love, his commandments being reflections of that. Then shouldn't Christians uh, seek to implement love, which would be reflected in God's law in the political process? Well, yeah. That's not seeking power, though. That's for the sake of power. That's seeking power for the sake of loving others. Now apply this to um, a personal situation here. Apply this to the situation that uh, Rosaria Butterfield's writing about. She's talking about um, serving people, hospitality, uh, ravioli, <laughs> right? And someone's sitting across from you at your table. Like, is it loving to neglect the what will bring her or that person life? Is it loving to just say, well, that's controversial. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, I mean, you shouldn't be a jerk. You shouldn't be like forceful because you don't have the right to be forceful. You're not, if you're not acting in a governmental capacity of some kind or you're not an authority figure, but, but you should at least be adamant that no, like there's a right way to do things and God has implemented that way and, and, and don't back down from it. And, and yeah, use discernment, of course, but um, to, to vilify the seeking of power, um, like empower, especially as, when it comes to, um, 
implementing God's law or making your standard the law of God, like that makes me uncomfortable. I'll be honest. Like it really does. And so I, I just have this concern in general that the non-saved, uh, the, the, the pagan, the, the person who doesn't know Christ is they're given a lot more um, power in the conversation to direct it and steer it than the person who is a Christian. And I could see that being a problem. Now, maybe Rosaria Butterfield, she navigates this fine. Um, I'm just saying that her book, I don't think, is very clear on this uh, in showing what that might look like. Uh, and, and I'm going to show you more examples of this as we, as we go forward and, and why I'm saying that. Um, if, if you look at uh, her language, I think it makes us feel very comfortable as conservatives. She says, um, you know, check this out. She goes, um, Freud first introduced the cultural idea of sexual orientation, right? <laughs> so she's saying that's not your identity. That's just something that came from Freud. I mean, look, the whole evangelical world is bending over to this idea. They're, they're bowing to it. They're saying, yeah, like your sexual orientation, that's part of who you are. And she's saying, nah, that's Freud. I mean, that's awesome. Uh, she says gay clubs uh, are dangerous and dark, where dangerous and dark sins are. And there's counterfeit hospitality there. Like, amen, right? Amen. Um, this is the thing that would offend feminists the most. She goes, uh, she's telling a friend that she's a stay-at-home mom and that's the way that it ought to be done and uh, that godly patriarchy is not my enemy. And she goes, the kitchen is my kingdom. So when you hear Rosaria Butterfield say things like this, and, and I put a very traditional picture of her, you know, playing a guitar with her dog there. Uh, looks like a golden retriever. I love golden retrievers. Anyway, um, it makes, I think, you feel comfortable. I, I mean, if, if that's all I knew about her, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this, this person looks great. Uh, I, would, I would trust what she says, probably. I mean, if she's willing to take that stand. And, and I think that would be um, a mistake in this case to trust everything. We still need to read with that discerning eye. Um, but I, I want to say, like, I agree with that stuff for the most part. Like, that, that's really um, solid stuff she's saying. And, and so I, I don't think that she's, um, based on this book, I haven't read her other works, but based on this, I don't know that she's, you know, a, a willful person, like a wolf trying to come into the church and uh, steer them away from um, godliness. I mean, she could be, and I don't, I'm not aware of it, but she's stepped on the taboos, some of the taboos that are just no-nos. You don't say those things. Even in the Christian world, those, to say that my, the kitchen is my kingdom, like that, you know, I, I just got to say, like, that's pretty bold stuff to say that. Um, but lest we feel too comfortable, let's uh, see what she says about social justice. So she talks about her race and class uh, privilege, which it's kind of thrown in there as a categorization of herself. She talks about a situation where there was a meth lab across the street and the police uh, come, they take those who made the meth lab and they spray them off. Uh, they're in hazmat suits and they treat them like subhuman trash is what she says and that they throw them on the ground. And this is a process by which image bears become prison numbers, lost people, nobodies. And, and so I wanted to just take, go on a tangent here for a moment because Russell Moore uses this language all the time about immigrants that, Hey, if you deport them, that's violating the image of God. Um, and the thing about this and is, yeah, and illegal immigrants specifically. The thing about this is where do we find the parameters for treating someone in a humane way? That, that word is very humanist. God is the one who gives us, through the image of himself on us, 
our worth. So God is also the one that gets to define the parameters of what's abuse and what's not, what is a violation of his image. Murder is a violation of his image, right? He sets forth those things in his law. And we see in the Old Testament examples of this. Um, I don't think stoning, right, is viewed as humane in our culture, right? Even conservatives would say, ah, it's pretty inhumane. But that is the way in the Old Testament, that's the way God uh, wanted certain crimes punished. So you you die by bruising. I mean, is that humane? So this is what I wanted to ask. And I would want to hear Butterfield's response. I want to hear Russell Moore's response. But like, where? how do you figure out what's humane and what's not? What's a violation of the image of God? It is a vacuous statement to say that simply because the police were rough with someone who was a criminal who did something that could have, Butterfield admits this, blown up her kids', her kids rooms uh, with a meth lab. I mean, it's, it's vacuous to say that uh, that's just inhumane. To, to treat a criminal according to their crime. Now, maybe she's saying they went above and beyond. This wasn't you know punishment fitting the crime, but um, what, what should the punishment be then? Um, it seems like this comes from a sentimental, it's very feelings oriented. It's, it's the way that people grow up. Children you know, watch Disney movies and they read books that have these underdog characters, these oppressed characters, and, and your heartstrings are tugged and you, you feel like you wanna give them aid and mercy. And, and this transfers itself, I think, into this, um, you know, when you get older, this idea that, well, that's just not Christian. That's not right. And you, you're pretty firm in it, but it's an emotionally kind of uh, gut reaction that a lot of people have. Um, I don't think it's an argument. It, and, and so all that to say, this is a tangent, obviously, but the social justice movement, I think, operates based on this. They take advantage of people that... Um, have uh, compassion, and and this is maybe perhaps misplaced compassion. Because if you think about this for a minute with me, put yourself in her spot for a moment. Um, you have a, neighbors who have a meth lab. It could have completely destroyed your house, let's say. Uh, and of course, we know, <laughs> we know, you know what they're probably selling it. They're 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 uh, affecting other people's lives with this, making your community more dangerous. And for the police to come there and be rough a little rough with them throw them on the ground would you like be up in arms about like well they're image bearers of god like it's it's a curious thing to me um now to have compassion on them which is what butterfield tries to do with hey there's other choices that brought them to this point and there's other needs and spiritual needs like absolutely right but um it's a curious thing because it's probably like they deserve a lot more than just being thrown on the ground and sprayed off right um jail seems mild like a, even, it, it, I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'm just, you know, coming at this from more of like a justice bent where, I, and I'm also a male and I, I think of my family and I want to protect them, but that should be, um, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to want. That's a good thing to be outraged. Uh, you know, when someone has threatened your family, um, you, you should want to protect your family. Um, and you can still at the same time have compassion on them. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, but um, anyway, I thought I'd point that out. That's social justice language right there. Um, she also points out, uh, and this is a perfect example, this tees it up for me. She likes the New York Times. She talks about this and she quotes the New York Times. Uh, and, she, and the New York Times are talking about refugees and how on the other side of the border, uh, the people there, so like in America, in the Western world, they do not see refugees as human at all, as human at all. So, so someone like myself, right, who doesn't think that we should have illegal migration, 
Um, do I look at someone in South America and think, well, they're not human or someone that, that should be deported and say, well, they're not human? No, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's completely vacuous. The only way this works, and I'll show it to you, there's one way that this works, and here it is. If you believe in diversity in the sense that every single person, uh, no matter who they are, right, regardless of anything, should deserve inclusion and acceptance, then then that's the only way it makes sense. And that's what our modern world believes. That's the new paradigm. And that's the paradigm she offers for what ra radical ordinary hospitality looks like. So, so here's what I'm pointing out. She applies what radical ordinary hospitality uh, looks like in a way uh, that is consistent, it seems like, with the world's definition of those terms. And I warned about that earlier, that you, you have to be careful. Um, borders are a good thing. Uh, the way things worked in ancient Israel, uh, you had to, if you were the stranger, the sojourner, you had to abide by even the religious laws of Israel while you were there, right? It, the cities had walls around them. Um, in the New Testament, I mean, Acts 17, you know, Paul even talks about the boundaries God has, has ordained. Uh, you know, having national boundaries is not a bad thing. It's about security, okay? Um, more than anything else, there's other reasons, but, um, but this is, this is interesting because the only way that you would, you, you can justify that being something that's, you know, not wanting illegal migration or, you know, and, and that's somehow like you're treating them as not as human or whatever. The only way you justify that is based on the new secular paradigm, which as Christians is not compatible. She also says, and this is so interesting to me, this is like, she says in, in January of 2017, President Trump closed the border for, to refugees for four months. All right, let's stop right there. He did not close the border to refugees for four months. He closed the border to a, only to a list of certain countries in the Middle East that had been given to him from the Obama administration, right? That, and and they, they were certain countries that, that had vetting issues and they thought terrorists could infiltrate our country. He closed that down to specific countries. So she... It's wrong the way she phrases this. And if she reads the New York Times, maybe it's not a surprise, but that's how she phrases it. Then she says, all hell broke loose, both nationally and in my neighborhood. My neighbors and I grieved differently over this, but we met over a meal at our houses to discuss. We already broke ground on hosting. So when a crisis was presented, my neighbors knew it was safe to ask and safe to come and safe to cry. This is a crisis. She goes on. I didn't put the quote there, but she talks about, and we talked about this a little earlier, that... Um, you, you don't want, you know, she didn't vote for Hillary. She didn't vote for Trump. Uh, she, you know, they're neutral and in some way, and, and, you know, they they have a safe place at their house for both sides of that debate. And, and so she's trying to act like she's politically neutral. That's part of being the winsome hostess that she is to get people to come and, and hear, you know, the word of God, which is okay. She can do that, but she's putting it out there as an example for us. Like we need to do this. And she's not politically neutral. She acts like that that's like something you should achieve is some kind of like political neutrality so people feel comfortable. But in her area of North Carolina, wherever she's in Durham somewhere, her neighborhood, I guess, they're all on the left. <laughs> if, if they're grieving over this and they think that's what's going on, that Trump has just closed it for four months to any refugees, they don't know what they're talking about. And, and then... <laughs> I guess there's no conservatives in her neighborhood, I don't know, that thought, hey, we have a vetting issue and it's good that he did this because 
at the time conservatives were saying like we need to ramp up our vetting so um so, so anyway why do i bring that up it's not to bash her it really isn't the reason i bring it up is to say look she um has some language of social justice and she also at the same time has some very conservative sounding language both of these exist in rosaria butterfield and in this and they're exemplified in this book now um does that mean she, if a leftist looked at her and could they say well she's an agent for the patriarchy or if a conservative looked at her could they say well she's an agent for the left because well both of them could i guess make the same argument if they wanted to you know pick certain things about her to highlight what i would suggest and this is just based on my little slice of the pie and looking at this book all right i haven't read everything she's written so there's there may be more to it but in just looking at this what i would suggest is there 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 is a sort of a um group of writers who are writing pop christian books that have come at this as converts to christianity or from outside of christianity in some way and she's part of this group and it, it reminds me of um you know uh the whole neoconservative versus paleoconservative debate which some of you might not be familiar with I'll, I'll explain it briefly but you you had these neoconservatives that came over that they love this country um some of them like fdr kind of like voters and they came over into the republican party because the democrats just started going socialistic and they were like we, we don't want to go that far no um, but they brought some of their ideas with them and uh, one of them was like the propositional nation that like you could go to iraq and set up the united states of america there because it's just a bunch of ad abstract principles and you can have democracy and paleoconservatives say that's ridiculous because we have a you know kind of a british uh, english heritage that um, came to us through common law we have a religion you can't just put the american system anywhere and and, and make it work so so, so that's one of the things um, that now is enshrined in supposed conservatism, um, but it, it actually came from like a neoconservative understanding because these neoconservatives brought with them some of the ideas they had when they were FDR liberals. And, and I think that's probably the best explanation for what's happening here is you have um, a group of writers and, and, um, and she's one of them, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, um, but there, there are others uh, who do the same thing. Uh, I think of um, uh, another author that would fit this bill would be the B.D. Anabwile or Jackie Hill Perry. You know, th they weren't Christians, but they um, they became Christians and then they became writers uh, in the Christian uh, community. And and they kind of bring their ideas with them, their assumptions that came from those previous communities. I think we're dealing with that a lot right now. And this idea that we should kind of platform people that are converts that came from outside because they have some knowledge, I guess. They have some insight that uh, is valuable to us. And um, so anyway, um, so that's how I understand her, at least based on this book, is that, you know, there, there's some good things she's realized that she's brought some some baggage with her. And, and here's some of the baggage. Um, on the lesbian community, this is what she says. When I was in a lesbian community, this is how we thought of our homes. I learned a lot in that community about how to shore up a distinctive culture within and to live as a despised but hospitable and compassionate outsider in a transparent and visible way. Uh, she says that she learned um, that our houses, our hospitals and incubators, something that she learned in my lesbian community in New York in the 90s. 
she says, out of desperation and fear and banding together in spite of our differences, a community was born. She's talking about her days as a lesbian. And she wonders, you know, what if the church had gotten involved in the AIDS epidemic? And, and what if they had um, been open and practicing hospitality? Like, and, and, and here's, the, here's the big thing. Here's the big thing, she says. She says, these lessons learned as far outside the walls of the church as possible are instructive keywords for Christians. So I've thought about this a little bit because um, it, it strikes me as strange when I, when I first hear it. Like that, the idea that Christians have something to learn from the lesbian community. First of all, uh, that, that term community is kind of strange because would we say that there's um, a racist community or, you know, a community of robbers. I mean, I guess there's a brotherhood among thieves. There's, uh, there's things like that there where what keeps them together is the crime or the sin or the lifestyle that is deviant that they are involved in. But, but that's the glue that keeps them together. They're, they're violating God's law in some way. And, and to call that a community, um, is a little weird to me. Like God created community. It, it comes down to a man and a woman and a family. And I mean, that's the way it's traditionally been used. But I, I recognize today, sometimes you could talk about like different hobbies, like, uh, you know, the hunting community or whatever. And, and maybe she's using it that way. I'll try to give her the benefit of the doubt there. Um, it just, it, it is strange though. I just want to point that out. But the idea that we could learn from, from these communities, I mean, th think of it this way. Um, you know, what if you were, uh, Ooh, into a pornographer, you know, you filmed pornography and you become a Christian and you come to the church and they want to make Christian movies, let's say at the church you're at and you get involved with that. Would you then write a book or um, try to, you know, show them what making a film is according to the principles you learned while a pornographer? I guess there's some technical things there that you could say, yeah, I know how to point and shoot a camera, but like, you know, this is something that God cares about. We're not talking about a technical skill. We're talking about something that's like fundamental to the requirements to be a church leader. Hospitality is important. Do you learn hospitality in a deviant community? Um, the, the argument she seems to bring is that it was during the AIDS epidemic that they were helping each other. So if you provide emotional and financial um, aid, that means it's a community, I guess, uh, under those terms. And And if that's true, then... Um, Christians, uh, I, I would think, you know, she says, where were they during th that crisis? But I mean, I happen to know that Christians give more than any other segment of American culture as far as um, charity is concerned. I mean, think about this for a minute. Um, this is kind of crazy to me. And, I, and this is, I think, two years ago that I, I remember looking at this stat. But Mississippi is like the most charitable state in the whole country. Mississippi, which is also, I think, the poorest state. Just, and, and why would that be? Well, it's also got the highest church attendance. And it, so it's like one of these enigmas where it, it's like the Christians are generous people in general. So I don't know why, don't they have something to teach the lesbian community about hospitality? Not, I know they have the gospel, which she admits, but no, I'm, I'm talking about like hospitality specifically. If that's something that God cares about and has required for church leaders to to have as an attribute, then the church should be the place to learn those things. And even if you learned certain technical things, maybe, or certain, there's certain things that you picked up about compassion while people were dying, right? Um, like to, to, to then say, well, like the church needs to be more like those people. 
who are sinners, but they went through this hard situation and they learned these lessons. Um, I, I would want to keep my mouth shut about that probably, or, or I would want to relearn those things in a context in which the spirit of God is at work, not in just a common grace way. That's her argument is that common grace, you know, makes it so that even non-Christians can operate um, in, in biblical ways uh, according to God's law. Well, here's what common grace is. Common grace is when you, um, you're not a Christian, let's say, uh, someone's not a Christian and someone, uh, operates according to God's law in so far as they do not plummet to the depths that they could have. God is restraining them from plummeting, um, to those depths, uh, because of, uh, from the outside, there's legal ramifications. There's a law that's coming to bear. And from the inside, there's a conscience that's common grace. And common grace enables uh, even non-Christians uh, to make some sacrificial decisions and, and actions at times. Um, but ultimately, at, at the bottom level uh, where it counts, there's an ungodly motivation. Uh, I mean, that's just biblical theology. Righteous deeds are filthy rags. There's nothing good uh, in, in someone before they are redeemed in Christ. And when they are redeemed, yeah, they can sin, but they have the option. You know, Christ... Um, Christ is, is changing them and changing their motivations from the inside out. And so uh, for, it's a weird thing. It is a weird thing. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine any other sin being treated like that. You know, I was in a community of robbers and that's where I learned hospitality. And so I'm going to teach the church because the church needs a new direction uh, so that the world who's watching will feel comfortable and well, they'll have a good reputation with the world because I'm going to show you what I learned when I was a robber. Doesn't that sound weird? It, it just, it, it's strange. And, you know, Russell Moore did this, uh, not to bring him up again, but I am. Um, he did this whole article not too long ago on Sesame Street. And he talked about how the church can learn from Sesame Street. And I'm seeing all these articles out there where it's the church is always learning from something in the world. And it's like, isn't the Great Commission like we're going out, like we have something to share the world and, and sal it's salvation, but it's also, it, it's keeping the laws of God, right? Teaching them what I have instructed you. Like that's how it should be. <laughs> not, not the world has something to teach us. And I keep hearing that and it's very dangerous uh, because it, it, where's the power of the gospel then? Where's the power of Christ? If that's the case, if the church can't get it right, the church is fumbling around and they're relying on someone who learned it in a sinful community to come in and show them that that's kind of what's happening here. Um, and, and I, I would, I would be curious to hear Butterfield respond to that. Cause you know, she's got, a, like I said, there's some good things she says in this. Um, I was even getting convicted that I need to be more hospitable, but, but I, that's not the source. That's not where you want to learn that. That's not spirit filled. That's not, they're not operating on biblical principles, um, you know, from, from a biblical motivation, from a godly motivation uh, in, in those places. So why would you want to then bring that into the church and, and say the church needs to learn from it? Um, I've said enough about that. Uh, the next thing is um, how she views, this is a contrast, how does Rosaria Butterfield view the evangelical Christian community? So we just saw how she viewed um, the uh, lesbian community. And she does have some negative things to say about the lesbian community. You know, they weren't diverse enough. Uh, they, you know, there's obviously she doesn't agree with their lifestyle at all. She thinks it's sin. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but she thinks, you know, on the topic of her book that they have some good insights. Well, what does she think about the evangelical Christian community? Well, here's what she says. And I'm going to summarize this, but she talks about 
um, Christians who do sneaky evangelistic raids into their sinful lives of their of their neighbors. And she says, maybe our own lives are actually more sinful. Maybe our own lives are more sinful than your neighbors who are not Christians. Maybe your Christian life is, is actually more sinful than theirs, is what she says. Okay, that, that, that's another example of what I just said. Like, where's the contrast then? What, what can the church offer the world? Uh, I mean, salvation, but that doesn't affect anything. Okay. Um, is our lack of care for the refugee and the stranger an innocent lack of opportunity, or is it a form of willful violence? Willful violence, if you don't care for the refugee. Um, and, and in the context, it, it's, it's a political context. So it was right after, I believe, the New York Times article I quoted earlier. So it's like, uh, so, so if, am I as a conservative who believes in betting, um, believes there should be a quota, not everyone should come here, we can't sustain that kind of thing. Um, does that mean I'm committing willful violence? Um, we have seen many people depart from an orthodox view of scripture in favor of a progressive one. I do not believe that all these people have sold out. And I got to ask, well, what, what are they doing then? And the reason she says that they haven't sold out is because she says that I believe that many of them are sick and tired of seeing their friends and family members who identify as LGBTQ made into straw men or women or reduced to political enemies or character on Facebook or in a conversation after the sermon or even more horrifically in the sermon. They wish to be an ally. They desire to stand in the gap for their friends. They don't want to be a bigot, etc. They don't want to associate with bigots. So they become liberal. And that's somehow justifiable in the sense that they, she, she says it's wrong that they've done this. She, she goes on to say, this is, hey, this, they're going in a bad direction. That's not the answer. But she doesn't think they've sold out because their motives are they don't want to be a bigot. And it's wrong somehow because in sermons, pastors have somehow made out their homosexual friends to be political enemies. This is, um, the, <laughs> there's some conflation, I think, going on here, perhaps. And there could be pastors who conflate. But I think Butterfield's also being sloppy. Because there, it is just true that there has been over the last 10 years a lobby in Washington that claims to represent uh, LGBT, now the Q and the plus and, and everything. But they claim to represent that, that group of various different sexual deviancies. And they want political rights of some kind, uber rights, over, above, and beyond with the Bill of Rights um, guarantees to everyone who lives uh, in the United States of America. They want special privileges and so forth. And, and this group has um, enshrined itself in uh, now a Obergefell decision, um, hate crimes legislation being a, the, the other big one, um, the Equality Act, I think they called it. Uh, you know, these, th these things um, have come from a certain community. Now, that community doesn't and I'm using the word community loosely here, by the way. Um, that's, the, that's the word they use, so I'm using it, but it loosely as it's a group of people. And they're after these objectives. Now, that doesn't mean they re represent everyone who's a homosexual or a lesbian or transgender, etc. But it does mean that there is a very loud, very influential group, and a whole lot of those people who do those lifestyle things are in this group advancing this cause. So if a pastor got up on a Sunday and said, you know, the gay lobby or, you know, the, um, homosexuals are trying to change the definition of marriage. Um, it, 
it's not, I don't necessarily think that's a wrong thing to do. That, that's a generalization because maybe, yeah, maybe there's some homosexuals that don't want to change the definition of marriage. I'm sure there are, but, um, but that pastor is, is not, you know, they're talking about a group that we all identify in our, we all know who he's talking about. We know the group that the media presents to us when th th that's said. And so she's blaming pastors for doing that kind of thing. And for, um, she says, creating these characters and, and look, I, I'm, I am fully aware of like Westboro Baptist, which I don't even think is a Christian group. Uh, I'm fully aware that there are pastors out there who have uh, done some things that are, are wrong. They've uh, misrepresented uh, homosexuals as if it's the worst sin. And th those kinds of things happen and they exist, right? But she, she's being broad about this. She, she, the example she gives could include an innocent pastor who's just... <clears throat> talking about a situation that his congregation needs to know about. Um, furthermore, even in the most extreme examples, if someone leaves Orthodox Christianity because they, they're just fed up with the hate or, or whatever, that's selling out. It doesn't matter if their motivation is pure. So, so there's, there's a sensitivity Butterfield has that she just really, really wants to make sure that uh, you know, people know that you know, she's uh, she's tolerant. She wants to bend over backwards for people who have um, left orthodoxy in order. She thinks those are like a good motivation uh, in a sense, or an under, I should say an understandable, not good. She doesn't think it's good, but an understandable motivation for leaving. Um, and, and I just don't think so. I, you know, truth is true. And you don't, you don't give up on something that you believe to be true and you know to be true if you're a Christian, uh, simply because um, it doesn't, you know, it, it makes your friends look bad or something like that. Or, or people who believe the same thing have said mean things, which is, that's essentially what this boils down to. So curious that she brings that up, but look how she portrays the evangelical community in this. Um, I mean, these are examples given of, and I think this is what she's trying to correct. This is what the book is against. Don't do it this way. Do it the way that I want you to do it which is this new radical ordinary hospitality. Um, so, so here's how you interact with the LGBTQ community, according to Butterfield. She goes, um, too many of us are sidelined by fears. We fear that people will hurt us. We fear that people will negatively influence our, our children. Uh, we fear that we do not uh, even understand the language of this new world order, least of all its people. We long for the days gone by. Our sentimentality makes us stupid. We need to snap ourselves out of the self-pity Pitying revelry, the days, uh, best days are ahead. Jesus advances from the front of the line. Um, <laughs> it's not wrong to look back at the past and say, we've missed some things. We've lost some things. All right. There's, there's nothing. I mean, look, <laughs> the longing that David expresses in the Psalms of wanting to be in the house of the Lord, um, you look at when Israel is in captivity, the longing to want to get back to the, the land. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a patriotic American who looks back and says, we have a good heritage. And I'm really, yeah, there's some stains, but you know what? We missed something. We've lost something. I wish we could get back to it. And, and she seems to not, she seems to think that's not good. That's a sentimentality that makes us stupid. I think it's a sentimentality that makes us strong. No, it means we know what we're rooted in. We know our principles. We can look back and say we, we've missed something. And, um, 
And, and she says that, you know, we, we fear that people will negatively influence our children. Yeah, yeah, we do. That, that's part of being a parent. It's part of being a protector of the home. If you're a father and, and a mother, you should be protecting your kids. You should be teaching them um, according to God's rules. And, and so huh, to, 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 to belittle that, um, she says, with my unbelieving friends, I tread carefully. Carefully for her children or carefully for the LGBTQ community? This is what she says. For example, I respect the rules of the LGBTQ community. I know these rules well. I help make them. <laughs> I remember the right names so that I don't confuse uh, the children raised in LGBTQ uh, homes. I know who the mama and who mommy and I is, and I teach my children to get it right. Uh, I speak to my neighbors with respect. Are you wives to each other or partners? I ask these questions because I care. I ponder. Um, have I made myself safe to share the real hardships of your day-to-day -day living? Or am I still so burdened by the hidden privileges of Christian acceptability that I can't even see the dangers in my hand, that daggers in my hands? Am I safe? If not, then why not? Even in a post-Christian world, we can claim unlearned privileges rooted in sentimentality for days gone by. We can yearn for the 1950s in America or a medieval monastery, but sentimentality will lead only to discontent. Best stay right where we are with eyes of faith wide open. That paragraph is a minefield uh, exposing your children to the rules of the LGBTQ community, legitimizing those rules by asking who the mommy, who the mom is. I mean, what if it was a, a couple that the, the woman, let's say it's a lesbian couple, wants to uh, say, I'm the daddy? <laughs> what do you do then? Um, the logic of this would say you respect the rules of the LGBTQ community, right? So she doesn't say that that's what you're supposed to do. She brings up a kind of a more um, uh, tame example, but you know, how far do we take this exactly? And do we consistently do it? Let, you know, let's say um, it's a transgender person and they you know, were born Bob and they wanna be called Sally. Okay, do you call them Sally once, but then have a conversation and correct it? Or do you just always call them Sally? I mean, look, names are a little more subjective because there's weird names out there now. You, you know, that feminine names for boys, masculine names for girls, and you can never, and some of their, you know, are, are either or. Um, so I realize those lines have been blurred somewhat. But, um, but, but I, I have to ask, though, where, where do you, <laughs> if you're going to make the LGBTQ community your standard, and their rules your standard, then you have to be very careful here because you're gonna quickly get into dicey compromising territory uh, and you're gonna teach your children to do that and you're gonna teach your children that that's respect. Uh, to call someone something that they are not is somehow respectful. And um, this, this is not, I think, biblical because it's not truthful. You're um, engaging in the delusion with them. And, you know, I'm gonna... I'm going to tell a story here in a minute, but, um, you know, she talks about the Christian community here again, the hidden privileges of Christian acceptability that I can't see the daggers in my hands. I mean, this is violent language. If you don't abide by those rules, there, there's daggers in your hands. That That's pretty radical, <laughs> not in the good way radical. Like that's like, you know, if, if you refuse to abide by their rules, like you this is, could be a lot more clear. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, th this could be a whale, uh, used as a weapon, wielded like a sword, 
uh, for someone who, who likes Revoice stuff. And obviously she contradicts the Revoice narrative. She even says uh, Revoice is a different religion, which I agree with. But but like they could use a paragraph like this and you know go to town with it. There needs to be a lot more qualifications here. And you know I'm, I'm going to tell a little story here, um, real quick. So I um, was I lived near where Rosaria Butterfield lives in Durham, North Carolina. And when I first went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, the first person I met, we'll call him Mark, was a guy uh, who worked at a gym. And I went into the gym and I gave Mark a track. And Mark uh, read it. And the next time I came in, I said, Mark, uh, what, did you read the track? What, what did you think about it? And he's, oh, yeah. You know, we got into this discussion about religion and Christianity. And I invited him to church. And I gave him my number. And he texted me. And he said, I can never go to your church, John, because um, I was born this way. What way? Well, homosexual. And, um, and, and I, I knew that about him. I didn't ask him what way, but I, I knew he was. He was. He presented it to me like I didn't know. And I was like, yeah, Mark, you know, I knew that. And, and he said, well, they won't accept me. And I said, yeah, they will. They accept all different kinds of sinners, all different degrees of sin. And, and so I, I, before I even progress with the story, I just want you to realize, like, number one, I, I identified what he was engaged in as a sin or what he thought of himself. I didn't even know if he committed a homosexual act. I still don't know. But his identity, I, I you know, identified that as sin. So we have all kinds of sinners, right? Um, I included myself in that. Um, I gave him a track right off the bat. So I, I didn't do this whole like, well, let's woo him over time and step on eggshells. No, it, here's the gospel. Repent. So this opened a door, though, to talking with him more. And I, I decided I'd just talk to him the next time I went to the gym. And he texts me the next day. He goes, John, do you think I could change? Do you think I could have a, a wife and children and, and live a normal life? It blew me away. I was like, what? This is the guy yesterday who was saying he was born this way. He'll never change. And, he, and come to find out, he was abused as a child uh, in a men's restroom and um, had an estranged relationship with his father. And um, there's a lot of things going into this that didn't know what a man was. I was always asking me what a real man did uh, with various things. And I try to give him biblical answers. So I, I try to be smart about it. Instead of doing the radical hospitality thing and inviting him, him into my house immediately, we, we met at neutral locations. And part of that was he's saying he's homosexual. I don't want to put him in a compromising situation where, where he, you know, if he's, I don't know what he thinks about me. I don't want him to unnecessarily have, des, you know, desires to be uh, welling up in, within him because he thinks he has an opportunity in a private location or something like that. We, we went out to breakfast and those kinds of things. And I would just, I'd share the gospel with him over and over. Um, he got it in his mind that he needed to be heterosexual on his own strength. And I had told him, I said, Mark, I think, I, I didn't tell him what some of the Revoice guys would have told him, which is you're a homosexual, you were born that way, but live a lifestyle of celibacy you know, come to Christ, you know, that's a great sell. <laughs> no, I, I told him the truth that you know, God's will is for humans, which you are one to, to be living in a heterosexual relationship, to leave father, mother, cleave to wife, have children. Yeah. I think with God's grace, that's possible, Mark. And he wanted to do it on his own strength to make himself acceptable before God. He thought that he needed to kick a habit I'll put it this way, a habit that is common to a lot of young men, um, 
heterosexual or homosexual or whatever. Uh, but he, he felt like he needed to kick that habit before he could be presentable before God. And I kept saying, Mark, he accepts you where you're at if you repent and if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he wouldn't do it. And there's a sad ending to this. He told me that he couldn't kick the habit and that he was trapped uh, because of that and told me bye. The day, it was the day I left the, for the semester. I was leaving school, um, heading back to my home, and he said, I can't do this. And I called him back and I reiterated what I had reiterated every time. It's the grace of Christ. But he, here's the thing. He knew during that three-month period that I cared for him. I, he could call me anytime that I would drop things to talk to him, to answer questions. He knew that about me. And he didn't reject me. He rejected Christ. That was very clear in the last message he sent to me, that it was the lifestyle um, that he couldn't kick. And it, and it wasn't even homosexuality. It was this habit that he had formed, and he couldn't kick the habit. And so all that to say, I did not abide by the rules of the LGBTQ community. I didn't tell him, well, you're, that's one of the rules, right? You're born that way. I didn't say, yeah, you're born that way. I didn't abide by that. And, and that's, when you say that we're going to abide by the rules, it sounds like you're going to hand a blank check. Um, I think you should be mindful of the rules in a way. You should be mindful of the way they view themselves. But you're going to have to be truthful. And, and it's better to be truthful early on. Because if you try to you know, form a relationship with someone and then, hey, by the way, I'm a Christian and this is what God thinks about your sin, um, you know, that, that, could, that seems like the bait and switch, in my opinion. So I think being upfront is the best thing to do. And, you, and it doesn't contradict being hospitable to someone. You can be upfront and hospitable. And upfront meaning you, you, you know, use language that does not accept the sinful lifestyle that they've engaged in. And so, um, so, so I don't know if that blesses folks out there. I, you know, I hope it does. That's why I shared it. But um, I, I don't have a problem, all that to say, with going into these situations. As a Christian who's, a, who's also conservative, who's an Orthodox Christian, who believes um, that you know, I, I don't want to compromise biblical truth ever, I can engage these kinds of conversations and be confident and I think there was a respect that Mark had for me because of that. I, the whole time he was asking me so many questions. Um, you could tell just, you know, looked up to me in a way. And it, and it was because he didn't believe in grace that he didn't, he couldn't accept grace that he went his own separate way. And I don't know where he is now. Um, but look, I, I have had the privilege over the years of knowing um, more than one former homosexual uh, who was engaged, some of them, you know, one of them in particular I'm thinking of, engaged in the lifestyle <laughs> as, as far as you can take it, pretty much, and uh, has a wife, has kids, um, it's gone, uh, you know, is, is not, doesn't view himself that way, and it wasn't because Christians had approached him and uh, they uh, were abiding by the rules of his community, and trying to kind of walk on eggshells around him or not bring up things that would cause him offense. And, and at some point, that hard conversation needs to come. Now, Rosaria Butterfield has an experience where she was uh, kind of attracted to Christianity because of hospitality she received from a Christian. And praise God for that. But um, 
But don't think that's, that's the only way it's done. God can use even imperfect things to bring people to Christ. Look to the examples of Christ. Look to the examples of the apostles. Look to the examples of the prophets. The prophets weren't having people over for tea. I guarantee you that. <laughs> um, there, there, there's a pattern uh, in multiple, I think, examples of how to engage sinners in, the, in Scripture. And, and that's my encouragement, really. Um, <clears throat> I think Butterfield thinks she's got this insight that she gained partially when she was in the lesbian community that she wants to share. And it's, it, she wants it to kind of be a one size fits all. Like this is how hospitality is done. Everyone needs to do it this way. And, and I think a lot of what she says is probably is good. Um, as far as like, she's very sacrificial. People can come all kinds of people that are home and feel comfortable and they can, uh, and, and she will, she, she makes it a point in the book. They do bring up the gospel at some point, at some point it is brought up. Um, I think that's all great. I really do. But I, I think there's a danger in thinking that the way that she does it is like, is, is the, the best way, the only way, the, uh, and, and some of the language that I've already discussed, I think is very problematic. Um, at the very least for an English professor, she, she's vague on some of this stuff. And there needs to be more clarity. And, and I haven't read everything she's written. So, um, so there's that. But if you're looking at this book, which is the most recent book she's published, uh, th that's my takeaway. There's some good things in there. There's some really dangerous things if taken to their logical conclusions uh, or uh, at least they're vague enough that you could certainly read into it things that uh, maybe even Butterfield wouldn't agree with, but she's left herself open to them. Uh, so that's that's uh, my take on that book. So it's not my full take on Rosary Butterfield, but it's my take on the book uh, that uh, she published. And um, I, I'm going to talk about a, another um, issue, if I may, uh, that's going on right now. Um, and we're switching gears a little bit, but not really, because uh, <laughs> it's along the same lines. There's this um, bill, H.R. 5331, called the Fairness for All Act. Uh, which was introduced to the House of Representatives uh, on the 6th of December. And, you know, basically, from what I can tell, I skimmed the bill and I went to um, the website where uh, the, the political action committee that was promoting this. And from what I can tell, you know, basically what this bill is doing is it's not the Equality Act, which would have forced nonprofits, religious nonprofits, to um, abide by uh, these hate laws and so forth, uh, you know, anti-discrimination measures, so-called, uh, for the LGBTQ community. Um, it's trying to create a, uh, a, a sort of a, a way for the religious organizations to be exempted. They, they have an exemption from that, but businesses will be hit by it. Um, and 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 so so here's the here's the thing. Here's the bottom line for me. It says on their web, on the, on the political action committee's website, uh, that uh, which is I think the if you if you Google fairness for all, if you just search it, you'll, you'll find it. Fairness for all act, it'll come right up. That this they they hint at that this will help the Christian uh, even businessman who who doesn't want to participate in like a wedding or something. I, I looked at the bill though, I don't find any language. I find the exact opposite. What's going on in this bill? Um, it. it from where I'm sitting is it will end up creating a situation in which uh, folks like photographers and bakers, um, 
who don't want to participate in same-sex weddings or they don't want to hire a transgender person or, you know, whatever the case may be, individuals who have religious convictions, they will have a hammer come down on them because now they are not allowed to discriminate based on uh, sexual orientation and, um, and, and that whole panoply there, the LGBTQ identities. Religious organizations supposedly will have this exemption. So th this also creates a, a new problem though, a bigger problem because it actually, uh, the, the, the freedom of religion in our Bill of Rights, it actually redefines it in a, in a way. It, it comes with an understanding that uh, freedom of religion is you in your religious institution practicing your religion, but it doesn't mean you can go out and practice your religion as an individual in the public square, which is exactly what the founding fathers thought of when they were conceiving of religious liberty. So it, it is a completely complete perversion of religious liberty. Now, I'm going to play for you. This is a video that the AND campaign put out. I'd like you to watch it. What does it look like to love someone you disagree with? Society tells us that if we love LGBTQ people, we must reject the historic Christian sexual ethic. But so many of us have LGBTQ friends and family who we love and who love us, and so we know that's not true. Love and compassion don't demand agreement, but they often demand social action. The church hasn't always fully demonstrated compassion in relation to sexuality. It's time that we repent and that we do better. Saying we love our neighbors can't just be empty words. We have to advocate for policies that protect the LGBTQ community while at the same time standing for our Christian convictions. You should know about the Equality Act. While it sounds good and moves to protect the LGBTQ community from discrimination, it would be devastating to faith-based institutions like churches, colleges, and hospitals. The Equality Act is an example of LGBTQ rights being used as a weapon against religious liberty. Religious liberty and LGBTQ rights should be shields, but the Equality Act allows LGBTQ rights to be used as a sword against the church. Destroying the communities we disagree with is not the answer. There's an alternative, the Fairness for All Act. The Fairness for All Act comes from a Utah policy where Mormons and the LGBTQ community came together to protect religious liberty and LGBTQ rights. The Fairness for All Act protects all religious groups, not just Christians, from the financial and institutional burden of defending lawsuits that falsely claim their faith policies are discriminatory. And it also protects the LGBTQ community from unlawful discrimination when it comes to areas like housing, workplace protections, social services, and financial credit. Disagreement is not the same as discrimination. Refusing to serve an LGBTQ couple at a restaurant is malicious and discriminatory. However, a faith-based hospital who serves everybody and saves lives is not discriminating if they decide not to do a sex reassignment surgery. A Muslim organization not hiring a Christian or somebody who disagrees with their sexual ethic is not unlawfully discriminatory. They've made a reasonable choice based on their values and their mission. Unfortunately, while the Equality Act does advance some important LGBT rights, it inadequately addresses religious freedom. The AND campaign holds to the historic Christian sexual ethic. We also hold to the Christian ethic of love. We want what is good for other people. The AND campaign supports the Fairness for All Act because it applies the compassion and conviction that we talk so much about. This really comes down to two questions. 
Should faith-based organizations have to surrender their convictions to keep their doors open? And should LGBTQ people face discrimination in getting or keeping employment, housing, social services, and financial credit because of how they identify? If your answer to both of those questions is no, then support the Fairness for All Act and send a message to D.C. that we're ready to work together when we can, and they should too. All right, so the way that this presents it is uh, you can be happy and LGBTQ people can be happy and Christians can be happy and Muslims can be, and everyone's just happy. And, and that's just not the case. Um, this actually, this turns the idea of religious liberty uh, on its head. Um, it, there's some hidden assumptions in it. Like, for instance, you know, didn't Jack Phillips, uh, the bake, uh, the guy who baked the cake, um, or he's a baker, but he didn't want to bake a cake for a gay wedding and he got in trouble. It was national news. I mean, didn't that happen? Didn't the Kleins in Idaho, didn't that happen? Um, wasn't there a bed and breakfast in New York that got shut down because of this? I mean, and these are just little examples. There's tons of examples of, of this. And, and somehow, I mean, these are the folks, these are, these are folks that are getting persecuted. Christians, right? Um, they're losing their businesses. And instead of protecting them, we're just going to protect their churches, apparently. And so, so they're still out in the cold. And um, it, we're going to say that the actual, the, the real victims right now are like LGBTQ plus people. They're not, you know, getting hired at the same rate, rates or, you know, whatever. They're, they're the ones that uh, need this legislation to protect them. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds on this because we don't have a lot of time in the video, but I tend to think that the Bill of Rights was enough and I don't like adding things really to it. I don't like, I should say, adding things to the Constitution um, to, to force businesses to do certain things with their private property. Um, and that and that creates, I know, a whole lot of other questions. We're, we're kind of, um, we're told over and over that like the Civil Rights Act uh, created the situation uh, of integration, right, in the South. And that we, we hold that up as kind of like federal government imposing itself uh, stomps out local bigotry and so forth. And, I, and I've studied that situation enough to know that that's not exactly an accurate picture. Um, that that there, there was the wind of culture was already starting to blow in a direction of uh, integrating businesses uh, and so forth before that legislation came down the pike. Um, there, there was already pressure. There was already uh, kind of an awareness. There was already a guilty conscience among um, folks in urban uh, areas where uh, this kind of thing existed. And I, you know, all that to say, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad, you know, that uh, you know some of that stuff is in the past, right? But at the same time, um, there are other principles that I think were trampled on in that process. And, and it's not, you, you can rejoice that a disease is cured, but you can also say, sometimes you can look at the cures and say, well, that cure might've been worse than the disease. And I think um, we've kind of adopted this idea that there needs to be like a federal intrusion into local businesses in order to make things fair. And even if it is the case, I, I just don't, <laughs> I don't understand what world these folks are living in where they think that, uh, the, I mean, people are afraid of getting sued because of discrimination already. Um, and, and so like, I, I don't see what they're trying to promote in this film. Like there's this massive discrimination going on, but look, if you're an, if you're an employer 
and you know you're hiring uh, you know waitresses, waiters, whatever, and you have someone who's uh, transgender, right? Um, who you know that you know you're in Middle America somewhere, and you know that the way they carry themselves um, will be um, uh, you know offensive or whatever to your can, the people that you're serving. Um, as an employer, uh, why why wouldn't you have the right to at least tell them, okay? you need to dress this way or you, you can't present yourself that way in my restaurant, right? There's uniforms and stuff, but you're going to get into a problem now though, because that's going to be viewed as discrimination. I'm a man. I should be able to wear a dress. Right. Um, so, so, so there's a lot, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, areas in which I think people aren't thinking clearly about this. It's not this simple, uh, you know, restrooms. What do you do about that? What if a business has a, a, a lady's restroom and a man walks into it? Um, and they don't want men in their restrooms. Now they can't do anything about it, potentially, right? So this, these are the problems that people aren't thinking through. And there's more of them that I'm sure if I thought about it, I could bring up. But but this this will really change the fundamentals of, of the culture. And how long do you think it will be until religious organizations are forced into the same thing? Because if you think about it for a minute, they're, they're saying in this ad, this and campaign ad, it's morally wrong to discriminate, for businesses to discriminate on the basis of LGBT identities. If that's morally wrong, why is it okay for churches to do it? If it truly is morally wrong? I ask you. Uh, there are competing moral systems going on here and you cannot straddle that line. This, this video is a pipe dream. It's smooth the way they try to sell it, but it's an absolute lie. And I don't know if you noticed, Michael Ware, uh, who you know is behind the Ann campaign and also was uh, Obama's uh, religious strategist. Um, he he is speaking in that video. Now here's something interesting. I just I, th I figured I'd bring this up um, because it, it's weird. Uh, someone pointed this out to me, but there's um, some opposition from Russell Moore of all people. And in the Baptist Messenger, he says. Um, he says, placing sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes in this kind of legislation would be harmful. Amen, Russell Moore. I totally agree with you. But the weird thing to me is that um, Michael Ware works with Russell Moore. And I'll show you that in a minute. But um, the civil rights group, uh, the, the human rights campaign, rather, um, human rights campaign says, this legislation would create a double whammy for anyone at the intersection of multiple marginalized identities. So a black lesbian or transgender Jewish woman, for example. Uh, so, so they're against it because it's not intersectional enough. So, so they're against it for totally different reason than Russell Moore's against it. So the human rights, so, so let me get this straight because it's going to be important for what I'm about to say. Human rights campaign against it. ERLC against it for totally different reasons. Now, watch this. This is where things get a little weird to me. I'm just pointing that out. And I put the title, I said, is this a game? Because I, I looked up some stuff online. Um, Paul Singer, okay, is his organization, which is the uh, the American Unity Fund that he funds, it has endorsed this legislation. Um, he's also a major donor to the human rights campaign, okay? So, so let me get this straight with you. Human rights campaign against the legislation, right? Um, Singer funds human rights campaign. Um, the um, <clears throat> American Unity Fund for the legislation. Singer 
funds the American Unity Fund. Now, look, I realize you get to these levels and sometimes people are funding all sorts of things that may be in diametrical opposition to one another. But, but Singer's a political animal. He's supposedly conservative. I mean, he's donated to Ben Sass and all sorts of big wig Republicans. Um, he, he's, <laughs> he's definitely not conservative on social issues. Supposedly he's conservative. He's not conservative on this stuff. And, and so he's got groups that he's pumping tons of money into on opposite sides of this. Well, not to put on my conspiracy theory hat, but then you got Michael Ware, uh, who writes for the Gospel Coalition and is a contributor to the ERLC, Russell Moore and Daniel Darling. Um, and if you go to the ERLC and you Google Michael Ware, you search him, 100 results for Michael Ware, 100. That's how integrated he is into the ERLC. So Russell Moore's against it, Michael Ware's promoting it. But Michael Ware is, you know, he was just with Russell Moore in an event in Washington on immigration. He's big at the ERLC. They're friends, clearly. Um, why why are there people on opposite sides of this and what's going on like and, and that's the one thing i ask is like is this a game like what what's going on here and so i'm not trying to bring that up to be like a conspiracy theorist to be like oh they're just trying to um you know put one over on us but it it, it does seem really strange to me and and i don't know how to quite make sense of all that to be honest with you but I figured I'd put it out there. Someone pointed it out to me and I verified it. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. You got some folks at very high levels that are playing both sides of this, both for and against it for different reasons. So uh, it would be a disaster if it's passed. I hope it doesn't get passed. So uh, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, in the next episode that's coming up Christmas week, um, I will be talking uh, to the author of The Trojan Mouse, and we're going to talk about Disney. We're going to talk about uh, a few of my favorite Christmas movies, and hopefully um, you enjoy that as well. So God bless. Uh, I hope this was helpful. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.